Now, in the seventh chapter, we have the law of the trespass offering and peace offering. And the instructions to the priest here continued in these two offerings. You see, the emphasis is upon their serving. And this is a picture of what the Lord Jesus not only has done, but is doing for us today under it God's right hand. You see, today he's still girded with the towel of service to cleanse us if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, concerning the trespass offering here, why we are told, likewise, this is the law of the trespass offering. It's most holy. And in the place where they kill a burnt offering, shall they kill the trespass offering, and he shall offer it, and so on. Now, the ritual of the trespass offering here follows the same pattern as the sin offering. Although it's for the acts of sin, the offerer is reminded that the sacrifice is holy. The worth and merit of Christ cannot be too much emphasized. When we see our sin nature and our sinful acts in all their enormity and frightfulness, then we shall see the wonder and the greatness and the holiness of Christ. My friend, you will never appreciate him as a Savior until you see yourself as a low-down, dirty sinner. That's what you are. And that's what I'm calling you because God's Word calls you that. Now, the blood is mentioned but not emphasized as in the sin offering. We're told, however, there is one law for them. There's a danger, I think, today of fundamentalism making the blood commonplace. I know a man, I get so tired of him talking about the precious blood. Well, of course it's precious, and anything's precious, you don't talk about it all the time. I think sometimes we ought to keep our diamonds and our pearls in safekeeping, a safe place. And don't let the swine get to the pearls, and we need to be on our guard that we treat holy things as if they were commonplace. I could dwell on that, but I better not. Now we see in verse 8, "...the priest that offereth any man's burnt offering, even the priest shall have to himself the skin of the burnt offering which he hath offered." And I've looked at that before. You see, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's important. And all the meal offering, we're told, verses 9 and 10, "...that's bacon in the oven, all that is dressed in the frying pan, in the pan, shall be the priest." And the particular type of meal offering went to the priests in its entirety, you see. Now we have the law concerning the peace offering here. And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer unto the Lord. Now the emphasis here is upon the fact that it must be a free will offering. The reason behind it's thanksgiving. This has a special meaning for believers. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And friends, today it's very hard to come to church and worship unless you're prepared to offer the sacrifice of praise to God. A complaining, criticizing Christian is in no position to worship God. How important this is. Now, we're told here that besides the cakes, he shall offer for his offering leavened bread. Now, notice that. They were to be unleavened 
in verse 12. But here in verse 13, the bread was to be leavened. Now, this is a very strange specific. Leaven is included. Why? Well, when leaven is a principle of evil, why should it be? The reason lies in the fact that in verse 12, Christ is in view. While here in verse 13, the offerer is in view. As he enters into the peace, Christ is made and provided. And you know, if we had to wait till we got perfect, none of us would be able to enter, and none of us would ever have peace. But his sins have been forgiven. He has peace with God, but it does not depend on the believer attaining sinless perfection. The leaven is present. Oh, how important that is. Now, you have this as an offering to God. Now, we have the peace offering was to be eaten at once. There's to be no delay. We're to stay very close to Christ for peace of conscience and power over temptation. My Christian friend today, stay close to him. That's the thing that's all important, and we need to recognize that. He only gives peace to those that are his own. And he only gives it to his own who have entered into this glorious, wonderful fellowship with him, that look to him, rest upon him. Oh, when you find Christ adequate and wonderful, then the peace of God that passeth all understanding is going to enter into your heart. What a picture these sacrifices are of the Lord Jesus. Now, friends, we come today to this eighth chapter of Leviticus, and this is an altogether new section we've come to. Here we have the consecration of the priests. And this is a very important section, and it'll throw a great deal of light on what is called consecration today in our churches. And I tell you, what we do today is a pretty sorry substitute for the real article, by the way. Now we have our attention directed to the priests and not the sacrifices. We've been talking about the sacrifices, but now it's the priests. And we are going to leave the brazen altar where the sacrifices were made, and we'll now turn to the brazen laver. You see, at the brazen altar, God dealt with the sin question for the sinner once and for all. But that doesn't mean that the saved sinner is perfect. He sins, unfortunately. But God has a brazen laver where he washes them, keeps them clean. And he's girded with that towel of service, and he washes us in the brazen laver today of the blood of Christ, God's Son, that just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. Now we see another similarity here, that Israel had a priesthood, and this is for them. In fact, the book of Leviticus is really for the Levites. And the church today is a priesthood. You see, it was God's original intention to make the entire nation of Israel a kingdom of priests in Exodus 19.6. I called attention to that when we were in Exodus. Ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now, their sin in the matter of the golden calf prevented Israel 
from becoming a nation of priests. So God chose one tribe. And at first, Aaron was the high priest. Now, today the church is a priesthood with Christ as the great high priest. And by the way, in the future on the earth, I believe that in the millennium that the nation Israel will be the priests on the earth in that day. Now, we find today that the church is a priesthood with Christ as the great high priest. Listen to the writer to the Hebrews, for that actually is what Hebrews is all about. In 8.1, I read, Now of the things which ye have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And again, Peter writing says in 1 Peter 2.9, "...but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light." And then in Revelation 5.10 I read, "...and hast made us unto our God a kingdom of priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And then in Hebrews 13:10, we have an altar, whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. Now, that altar today is in heaven. It's a throne of grace, we're told. And in Revelation 1, 6, "...and hath made us a kingdom of priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, what is a priest? Well, we are given the definition of a priest in Hebrews 5.1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for man in things pertaining to God, that he may offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now, you see, a priest is one who represents man before God, and he goes in to God on behalf of man. Priesthood in the Scriptures bears no similarity to any order of priests in any religion of the present time. Altogether different. The priest represented man before God. fact of the matter is, that he's the opposite from a prophet. A prophet comes out from God to speak for God to man. A priest comes out from man to go to God to speak for man to God and to represent man. You see, the Lord Jesus is both prophet and priest. He came out from God and spoke for God to man. He reveals God to man. Now he goes from man back to God and is our great high priest. He represents us there. In fact, we're in him. And my friend, if you're not in him, you're not up there, because you and I could never get there on our own. By the way, at this particular juncture, a knowledge of the tabernacle is really essential to an understanding of Leviticus, and especially of the priesthood. And I would very much like to put in a commercial here and say that our book, The Tabernacle, God's Portrait of Christ, is still available. We offered it back in Exodus, and we'd like to send you a copy. Now, we have here 
a certain typology of the tabernacle and the priesthood that are so rich in meaning and detail that there is a danger of emphasizing, I think, one facet at the exclusion of another. And, of course, we're limited by time. And we might give a wrong inference, and I don't want to do that. The ramifications at this point, may I say, are manifold. But I think truth should be held in a true perspective. And I think that we need to note that the outer court of the tabernacle represents the world down here where we are today. Here's where Christ bled and died. But that holy place is unseen, to which our great high priest has passed. Actually, what happened when the Lord Jesus died on the cross and went back to heaven, he took the tabernacle and the meaning of it that actually it was horizontal with the earth. Now it's perpendicular. The altar was down here. He died on a cross down here, but he went back to the holy place up yonder. And we're told in Hebrews 4:14, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And then in Hebrews 9:11, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. And he's right now in the Holy of Holies. At this very moment, friend, that you're hearing this, he's up yonder. And if you're his, he's up there for you. Notice what the writer to the Hebrews says again in Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Now the things which we've spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who's set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Now he's up yonder for us today. I wish we could bring reality today into our faith. We go to a church and go through a little ritual. It's pretty milky, may I say. It's just sweetened water, saccharine sweetness. The realities of our faith are forgotten today. He's up yonder, friends, right now for you, and you can go to him. Oh, how wonderful. And we're told to come with boldness. Listen again, Hebrews 9, 23 and 24. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. For whom? For us. He's up there for us. Oh, there is an availability today an availability of God today, of Christ there for you and me. You're not alone down here. Therefore, this tabernacle is ended up. The Holy of Holies is up there. Now, twelve times in this chapter, we're coming to chapter 8, and all this is preliminary, you see, I'm giving, that the Lord commanded Moses. The final one, I think, is a clincher in the last verse. So Aaron and his sons did all things which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. This is what God commanded. Consecration today is not some little peewee service 
that is about as banal as anything can be and just about as boring as anything can be. Burn a candle or throw a chip on the fire as if we're doing something. May I say that consecration is the way he says it's to be done. I think that when we have this here, that this is the answer to those who claim to believe in the inspiration of Scriptures, but they accept the late dating of Leviticus as the invention of the priesthood. We've got some folk that say they believe that. All right, God says here that they did this as God commanded by the hand of Moses. All right, what goes on here? If you say that you believe in the late dating of Leviticus and that you believe in the inspired word, then what are you believing? Inspired lies? Inspired falsehood? My friend, let's be consistent. If you believe in the late dating of Leviticus, you do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. You believe in something else. Now, we have here in chapter 8 something that's quite wonderful. We have the priests, and we have them now from chapters 8 through 10. And we have here the consecration of priests the calling of the congregation to witness the ritual, the cleansing of Aaron and his sons, the clothing of the high priest, consecration of the high priest, clothing of the priest, cleansing of the priest, and Aaron by the blood of the offering. Now I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 through 3. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and a bullock for the sin offering, and two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread, and gather thou all the congregation together under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now Moses is commanded here to bring Aaron and his sons with all the articles which are to be used in the consecration of the priests. And it sounds sort of like a grocery list, but it's very important what it speaks of. Then he's to gather the congregation together to witness the ritual of consecrating the priests. And this, I think, was a very impressive service. They will see that God takes feeble men and sets them aside for his service. And I feel like saying hallelujah at that basis because he'll do that for you and me today. Now, in Hebrews seven twenty eight, I read, "...for the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh a son who's consecrated forevermore." Now, he's consecrated. I'm not, really. We'll see what I mean by that. The marvelous thing is, he takes men with infirmity. If he demanded perfection, I'd be left out. Thank God he takes them like that. Now, will you notice the articles that he uses? And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly was gathered together unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, Moses does what he's told to do. And the people likewise obey and come together for the service. Verse 5, And Moses said unto the congregation, This is the thing which the Lord commanded to be done. And friends, this is what God commanded. And now Moses gives a word of explanation. He's following the instructions of the Lord. Now you have the cleansing of Aaron and his sons. Verse 6, notice this. 
And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Now, he gave them a bath, if you please. Moses brings Aaron and his sons seat of the laver for washing. Now, this signifies that they are to be holy, pure, and clean if they are to serve the Lord. Now, they've already been to the altar for forgiveness, but they need cleansing. And that's the thing I insist on today, that a great many people say, well, I'm saved. You are? Hallelujah. And you think that justifies you to do any kind of service? And they say, yes. And I say, you're wrong. You have to be cleansed to be used. Listen to this. It's not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit renews as we go along. We're told to draw near with a truer heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What does that mean? That we've been to him for cleansing. And again, Paul in Ephesians 5.26 says, "...that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word." You want a good bath? Let me suggest a good bar of soap, the Word of God. That'll clean you. That's what he says here. Listen to the Lord Jesus. John 13:10. Jesus saith unto him, He that wash needeth not save to wash his feet, but is cleansed every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. And he's talking about Judas. And we are told if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want to be used of God? Then go confess your sins, Christian. That's the first step. Somebody says, well, I don't like that. I'm not asking you that. Whether you like it or not, God commanded it. You either do it his way or you don't do it. Because, you see, he has his way of doing things. Now we have the clothing of the high priest. And this is a picture of our great high priest in all of his glorious graces and all of his beauty. Now notice, and he put upon him the coat, and girded him with a girdle, and clothed him with a robe, and put the ephod upon him. And he girded him with the curious girdle to the ephod, and bound it unto him therewith. Now there were eight articles worn by the high priest. Four were the same or similar to those worn by all the priests. But four were peculiar to him, and they were called garments for glory and for beauty and that separated him from the other priests. Now, the four which were common to all the priests were these, the coat, the girdle, the turban, or the mitre, a bonnet, and the breeches. Now, these were all made of white linen, with the exception of the turban, and it had that blue on it. The white linen speaks of righteousness. Every believer is clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and to be thus clothed is essential for service. And also to be girded, it's necessary for active obedience. Now we have the coat and girdle mentioned in this verse. They were the basic garments which all the priests wore. Now we went over all of that back in Exodus, and I'm not going to repeat it today. And in verse 8, we're told, He put the breastplate upon him, also he put the urim and thummim. Now, Again, the breastplate is described back in Exodus 28, and if you want a review, you ought to go back and read that chapter. Now, the Urim and Thummim mean lights and perfections. They were placed in the breastplate, 
and I do not know exactly how they function. Some think that they had to do with the law, possibly the law written on stones. And in Psalm 19, there may be a reference to this. The law of the Lord is perfect. That's perfection, thumbing. And the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. That's light, urine. I think that there is that spiritual application. And I think that these two had something to do with determining the will of God. And we need the Word of God, and we need the leading of God to determine the will of God in our lives today. We need the Urim and Thummim. Whatever that meant, I'm not quite clear. Now, verse 9, "...he put the mitre upon his head, also upon the mitre, even upon his forehead. Did he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses?" Now, this was put upon him, and it was holiness unto the Lord. These garments distinguish the high priest from the other priests. And we need to recognize you and I can come as lost sinners to Christ, and we can come today as soil saints. But my brother, you and I have to know he's holy, and he'll not tolerate sin in our lives. If we're going to come and accept him as Savior, we turn from sin to him. If we are to serve him today, we have to deal with sin in our lives. Now, will you notice as I move on down, we have the consecration of the high priest in verses 10 and 12. And Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was there and sanctified it. It had been sprinkled with blood before. Now it's anointed with the oil. This means that they were redeemed and cleansed articles, redeemed the blood. The oil, the Holy Spirit cleansed, and the Holy Spirit's represented by the oil, and he's free to move and work in the worship and service of the tabernacle, you see. And we're told today that we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, he sprinkled on the altar. We're told here, verse 11, seven times anointed the altar, all his vessels, both the laver and the foot of it. Now, this act of sprinkling the oil speaks of sanctification. All was now ready for use. Each article of furniture set apart for the service of God. Notice, he poured of the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify. Now, Aaron had the anointing oil poured on him, not sprinkled. It's like the precious ointment, we're told in Psalm 133, 2, that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garment. My friends, he just covered with oil. He was a regular oil man. Now, the Holy Spirit was poured upon Christ at his baptism, and he distinctly stated that the Spirit was given to him without measure. That was said in John 3:34. And it's noted that the oil was poured on Aaron before the priests had the blood applied to them. Our high priest needed no offering for sin, <laughs> but we do. That had to come first. Now you have the clothing of the priests here. And Moses brought Aaron's son, put coats upon them. Now, that means that they were doing it according to the commandment of God and that they had to stand clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, at verse 14 through 30, we have the cleansing 
of the priests and Aaron by the blood of the offerings. I'm reading verse 14. And he brought the bullock for the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the head of the bullock for the sin offering. Now the bullock was the sin offering for the high priest, but now the four sons of Aaron claim it also. Their sins are transferred to the victim. That is understood by the laying on of the hands. And God wrote indelibly in their souls and burned it into their hearts that they were sinners, though they were in the service of God. And you will find that as you go through the Word of God, that God's men have always been conscious that they're sinners. I think that probably one of the greatest statements I ever heard was that is reported to have been made by Tholuck, the great university professor in Germany at Halle University. And this man, on his 80th birthday, and I think he'd been teaching over 50, they asked him what he was most thankful for. And he said, I'm most thankful for the consciousness and conviction of sin. I wish we had more today that were very conscious of their shortcomings and sins. God could use us if we had that. Now, in Psalm 40:12, let me read. For innumerable evils have compassed me about. Mine iniquities have taken hold upon me, so that I'm not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of mine head, therefore my heart faileth me. Do you feel like you're that kind of a sinner, friends? Well, he can do something for you if you are like that. After all, if you don't get sick enough to go to the doctor, you won't go to him. And if you're not sure you're a real sinner, and I mean a mean one, you're not apt to go to Christ. And then in Psalm 38, 4, I read, for mine iniquities are gone over mine head as a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. And friends, when you got a load that's too heavy for you, you try to find somebody else to carry it for you. And there is someone. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I'll rest you. I'll take your burden. And then in Psalm 69, 5, O God, thou knowest my foolishness. And my sins are not hid from thee. You're not kidding him, and you're not fooling him, and he knows all about you. You just well tell him, don't you think? In verse 15, we're told he slew it. That is the bullock for the sin offering. Moses took the blood, put it upon the horns of the altar round about with his finger, and purified the altar, poured the blood at the bottom of the altar, sanctified it to make reconciliation upon it, he took all of the fat that was upon the inwards, the call out above the liver, the two kidneys and their fat, and Moses burned it upon the altar. But the bullock and his hide, his flesh and his dung, he burnt with fire without the camp as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, I read all that and read it rather hurriedly, as you see, just to let you know something of this ritual that until you see the spiritual side is absolutely meaningless. You see, they follow the ritual of the sin offering, with the exception that the blood is put on the horns of the brazen altar rather than at the golden altar, which we saw back when we considered the sin offering. You see, even the altar which is used for the bloody sacrifices must be dedicated with blood. Why? Well, that's to remind you and me, friends, there's no merit in the cross. 
We've got a lot of folk today, and both Catholic and Protestant for that matter. There's no distinction here that thinks somehow or another, if you put up a cross at a church or put up a cross somewhere, that it has some sort of merit. They've had a great lawsuit up in Oregon. And I frankly think that they infringed on religious liberty up there when they made them take that cross down, great cross that looked over the city. Well, very candidly, I guess the unsaved doesn't like to look at it. But let's be very frank. There's no merit in a cross. After all, the merit is in the one who died on that cross. He was made sin, yet he was separate from sinners. And this little act reveals that. Now we go ahead here at verse 18, and I'm not going to read all this because we are actually going through the ritual now of the burnt offering, and we've had that before. And this can become a little boring, by the way. Now, the burnt offering followed the sin offering. And it's impossible to comprehend the beauties and merits of Christ until the sin question is dealt with in a manner that's satisfactory to God. You will notice, by the way, that this sin offering offered first, then the burnt offering. The sin offering represents what Christ did for us on the cross, then the burnt offering, who he is. And you can never really know him until you've come to him first as Savior, and you've accepted him as your substitute for sin, that he paid the penalty for your sin. That's very important to see. Actually, that's what fellowship means in the New Testament, means to share the things of Christ, and only those who are blood-bought believers can share the things of Christ, friends. After all, the priests had to go inside the holy place to see the beauties of that place. Outside, it wasn't very pretty. And the unbelieving world can blaspheme Christ, pass him by. But the child of God is finding new beauties and glories in him every day. Now we're told here that he brought the other ram. I'm reading verse 22. The ram of consecration now. And the ram of consecration was actually a trespass offering. No peace offerings were made. Why? Because the priests are already in the sanctuary, the place of fellowship and communion. Now, did you notice what he does here? That Moses took of the blood of it, he put it upon the tip of Aaron's right ear, and upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot. And he brought Aaron's sons, and Moses put of the blood upon them the same way. Now, we have here, as we've said, this is a trespass offering. This is for the sins of the people, for these men. Now, the blood-tipped ear was essential to hear the voice of God. You're not going to hear him, friends. The natural man receiveth not the things of Christ. He just doesn't want them. You have to have a blood-tipped ear. Now, the blood-tipped hand was essential for service. A man says, I'm going to give to the Lord. No, you're not until you're saved. You have to have a blood-tipped hand. And then a blood-tipped foot was essential for a walk before God. And there are those who say, well, I'm a good person. I live a good life. That's all I need. Oh, no, friends. You'll never walk satisfactory to God 
unless you have that blood-tipped foot. And that is essential. Now, you find here that the same ritual is followed now with all the priests. And I'll pass by all of this. You'll notice in verses 25 through 29 that some from all the offerings were put together and placed in Aaron's and his son's hands. They then waved them before the Lord. And may I say, this was total commitment to God on the basis of the value of one offering. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now at verse 30, "...and Moses took of the anointing oil and of the blood which was upon the altar, and sprinkled it upon Aaron, upon his garments, upon his sons, and upon his sons' garments with him, and sanctified Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him." And now you see the priests together with Aaron are now consecrated with blood and oil, blood for the forgiveness of sin the work of Christ, the oil, the anointing of the Spirit of God. Thou shalt take of the blood that is upon the altar, we were told back in Exodus twenty-nine, twenty-one, And at that time it was to be sprinkled upon Aaron. And the Lord Jesus, you remember, said, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. That's John seventeen nineteen, his great high priestly prayer. He was set aside like this for God. Now, I'm moving into this area of consecration. I think Jude had this in mind, where he says, "...and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh." You see, believers are to walk before the world as blood-bought children of God. Now, you can run into a little service, and you can put a chip on the fire, or you can burn a candle and say you are a consecrated Christian, but my friend, I'd like to ask your neighbors what they think about you. I'd like to ask the folk where you go to school. I'd like to ask the people with whom you work, what do they really think about your consecration? Do they really believe that you're serving God? I heard a wonderful thing said about a Christian the other day. This man's an unsaved man. He says, Now, I don't know much about that fellow's religion, but if I ever get religion, I want his religion. But he says, I really think he's sort of fanatic on religion. May I say that was a tremendous compliment. The man, he thought that was fanaticism, but he said if he got religion, that's the kind he wanted. A lot of it today is not very appealing to the world outside. Now we have commandments given to Aaron and his sons in verses 31 through 36. And Moses said unto Aaron to his sons, Boil the flesh at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and there eat it with the bread that is in the basket of consecrations. As I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it, and that which remaineth of the flesh and of the bread shall ye burn with fire. Now, I told you that when we started out with that list of things that they were to have for consecration, they looked like a grocery list. Well, that's what it ended up. They had to eat what's left. And this, I think, sets before us the fact that believers are now to feed upon the finished work of Christ. Peace and satisfaction 
are the portion of believers only in ratio to the measure in which they feed on Christ. Nothing is to be left. All must be consumed or burnt with fire. Nothing is left to spoil or to waste. And that's important. Oh, how God's people need to feed upon him. We're told here in the last few verses, 33 through 36, that there were to be seven days of consecration and meditation. In other words, they were to remain continually on duty at the door of the tabernacle. You see, our great high priest, he ever lives to make intercession for his own. You can wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning. He's right up there for you, friends. And you may be way out yonder somewhere in a difficult, dark place. He's available. And all this was done at the commandment of God. This is emphasized as it's repeated in each of the last three verses of this chapter. I think the reason for this will be made clear now in this next chapter. Now we come to chapter 9. As Aaron and his sons begin their ministry, the glory of the Lord appears now. It's his approval, his blessing upon them. I think this chapter is intensely interesting that we're coming to chapter 9 because it marks the initiation of Aaron and his sons into the service of the priesthood, but it gives in detail the daily ritual of the service of the priests. And with the exception of the great day of atonement, very little detail is given in the remainder of Scripture relative to this daily ritual. Now, we notice something else. The priest became at this time a priest for the first time. Although he was born in Aaron's line, he was not fully a priest until consecrated. And you know what the Hebrew expression here for consecration literally is? It means filling the hand. That means you come to God with empty hands. Consecration doesn't mean that you promise to go as a missionary. Consecration means to come to the Lord and say, Lord, what will you have me to do? Come with empty hands. Let him do the filling. That's consecration. A great many people feel like you've got to bring something to God if you're consecrated. And some folks seem to think they're giving the Lord a whole lot when they give themselves. Well, you're not giving him very much, friends. When he got me, all he got was just that much sin. That's all. And we have the same word, consecration, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation. And I think it's very close to it. The word is teleo, telos. That means in. It means the purpose, fulfilling the purpose. Or it means to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish. You find that word telos in telescope, a telephone. And I think that explains some of the statements we have in the New Testament. Hebrews 2.10, it says, "...for it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings." That is, make him complete. It was necessary for him to come down here to accomplish the will of God in order that he might bring many sons home to glory. And then in Hebrews seven twenty-eight, it says, "...for the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore." 
accomplishing the purpose, the God-given purpose. You see, therefore, we have here in this chapter the office of Jesus, not his characters in view. And that is true of the believer, actually. Now, we have here the ministry of the priest in chapter 9. Aaron prepares to begin his service, first seven verses. Aaron offers the sin offering, and Aaron offers the burnt offering, and Aaron offers the meal and peace offerings, and Aaron blesses the people, and the glory of the Lord appears. My, what a thrilling section this is. Now, we're told, I begin reading at verse 1, it came to pass... On the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said unto Aaron, Take thee a young calf for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. All of this is done at the commandment of God. Even the details were covered for the seven days. Now on the eighth day, Aaron was to begin his service as high priest. The eighth day was also the first day of the week. This is the day that Jesus came back from the dead, and Jesus entered into his office as priest after his death and resurrection. Now, the writer to the Hebrews says that if he was on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, that it was not until he ascended into heaven. As Aaron entered into his office as high priest on the first day, his four sons were there as witnesses. And likewise, we have four gospels which were witness to the fact of the death and resurrection of Christ. And we today have a perfect and complete priest. And being made perfect, that is complete, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And we obey him when we believe on him. And we obey him after we are believers when we attempt to do his will. That'll be consecration, friends. Consecration is when you and I come with empty hands to Christ and say to fill him. Consecration is not take a little chip and put it on a fire, take a candle and burn it and let your little light shine. You've got no little light, friends. We're not lights until we're in Christ. And we come with empty hands, and if he wants us to burn, then we're to burn. And if he wants us to go to Africa, then he'll send us to Africa. We need to... Be very careful today. These sweet little consecration services, frankly, make me sick. I've seen some of the meanest saints in the world get up and say the sweetest thing at a consecration service. And it's very emotional and very tender, but it sure is hypocritical. Oh, today that you and I belong to him as we should. Now we are told here in verse 3 and 4, "...and unto the children of Israel thou shalt speak, saying..." Take ye a kid of the goats for a sin offering, calf and a lamb, both of the first year, without blemish, for a burnt offering, also a bullock and a ram for peace offerings, to sacrifice before the Lord, and a meal offering mingled with oil, for today the Lord will appear unto you. Now, we have here then a sin offering, kid of the goats, a burnt offering, a calf and a lamb, and a peace offering, a bullock and a ram, and so on. And the Lord was to appear on that day. Now, through the death of Christ to the resurrected high priest at God's right hand, that's the way to approach God today. And we have here a picture of the day when Christ shall come forth with his own, the church, 
to the nation Israel to institute the kingdom. What a picture you have here. But the people obey, and Moses assures them that the glory of the Lord shall appear unto them. Aaron offers a sin offering, and the ritual of the sin offering is followed in meticulous detail. The sin offering was made first. Why? Well, when the offerings were given at the first of the book of Leviticus, it was the burnt offering. The sin offerings come in last. Why? Well, there we're approaching it from God's viewpoint. Here we approach God from man's viewpoint. And my friend, you and I come as sinners, and that question has to be settled first. Then you have the burnt offering. And then you have the other offerings made here, and the ritual is followed as it's been given before. What a picture we have of him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief when thou hast made his soul an offering for sin. And then Aaron offers the meal offering and the peace offerings according to the ritual. And then Aaron blesses the people. And the glory of the Lord appears. Verse 22, And Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them, and came down from offering of the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering. And then we are told here, And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. There came a fire out from the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. Christ now is entered into the holy places that's not made with hands, but he's entered into that which is true heaven itself to appear there for you and me today. Oh, my friend, today lay hold of this living Christ. What a wonderful, wonderful privilege we have today. Now, as we come to the 10th chapter of the book of Leviticus, we have just concluded the consecration of the priests in 8 and 9. And we find something here rather startling. Nadab and Abihu, two sons of Aaron, they intrude into the priest's office without authority, that is, of the high priest. And the penalty was death. I hope you've noticed that the book of Leviticus is not a book of narrative. Very few incidents are recorded. In fact, only two. This is a book of instructions, rituals, regulations, and laws. And it doesn't make for the most interesting reading. But here we have a change of pace, and it is the narrative, but that's almost obliterated because of the tragedy that's recorded here. And here's another blot on man's long and sordid history of sin and willfulness. This is the record of the rebellion and disobedience of these two sons of Aaron. And it comes after that glorious day of dedication, and the glory of the Lord was revealed. But you know, that's the way it happens after a flush of victory then there is defeat for so many. You remember in the book of Joshua, after the fall of Jericho and the victory that Joshua had there, then the miserable defeat and ignoble defeat he suffered at Ai. Here you have the presumption of Nadab and Abihu, and it's frightening in light of the clear teaching that was given of the Lord at Sinai. We're told in Exodus 19, 22, 
And let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. Then we're told here in Exodus 30, verses 34 to 38, and I'll not read all of this, that they were forbidden to make frankincense and to use it. And that's exactly what these fellows are doing here. And here we have the holiness of God set forth at the beginning of the age of law. And then somebody says, well, the holiness of God is not set forth then at the beginning of the age of grace. Oh, yes, it is. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? Death was the drastic penalty in both cases. And our God is holy, and he deals with his children on that level. Our God is a consuming fire. And that's something for all of us to learn today. And Paul could say, knowing the terror of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And that is something we need to recognize today. And we are told in Hebrews 12:25, "...see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not, who refused him that spake on earth, much more." Shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven? And that is one of the great sins of the hour of not hearing what God has to say in his word. Now we have in this chapter the incident concerning Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron. Then we have instructions coming out of the incident, and then an injunction concerning the offerings in connection with this incident. I'm reading now verses 1 and 2 of Leviticus 10. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. There went out fire from the Lord, and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Now it may be argued that the penalty of death here is just a little severe for the transgression that's committed. But will you notice what God says here, which he commanded them not? And then I think if you'll note that, that will reveal something of the enormity of the crime. And therefore, the penalty is in accordance with the crime. This was willful and deliberate disobedience to the express command of God. Precisely what did they do which brought down this severe judgment upon their heads? The act has been labeled will worship, and such it is, of course. But in what direction? Now, there have been three suggestions, and I'd like to mention them. The first, they probably did not like the censor of incense from coals from off the altar, the fire which had come down from heaven. It apparently was understood that this must be done. This was the practice on the great day of atonement, as we'll see in Leviticus 16:12, where it says that he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord. And then he shall take sweet incense beaten small and bring it within the veil. 
Now, this was the ritual at the time of the rebellion of Korah. It must be assumed that this method was the only correct one, and the ritual they followed was contrary to God's way. Then in another direction, they disobeyed. Their timing was certainly out of step with God-given ritual, and the ritual for the day had been completed. They should have consulted Aaron in this matter after the marvelous display recorded in these two preceding chapters, they wanted to repeat it. In our day, is it not will worship to try to repeat the experience of the day of Pentecost? I see today so much of trying to work up something down here. And friends, that's will worship. And God doesn't like that. The Spirit of God is sovereign, and He'll move according to His will. And you and I, should make ourselves available and obedient unto him. Now, there have been others that suppose that they intruded beyond the veil which was expressly forbidden. And I think that this was accurate, that we have justification for that, because again, over in Leviticus 16, 1 and 2, on the great day of atonement, we're told, "...and the Lord spoke unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron." when they offered before the Lord and died. And the Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. You see that they were not to come inside the Holy of Holies. And it came out of this incident of Nadab and Abihu. So I assume that that's exactly what they did. Now, I suppose even after saying all of this, that this soft generation may still have a generation gap between themselves and God. And they'll still think this is extreme surgery. But it does reveal that our God is a jealous God, that He's sovereign in all His dealings, and those who come to Him must come on His terms. It's still true that to obey is better than sacrifice, and God will not accept will worship. The high position of these men granted them no immunity. The sudden execution of judgment here, I think, is startling. There is no escaping the statement, far from the Lord. This is not foreign to the age of grace. It may not be as sudden, but it's equally as sure. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 11:30. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, it was sudden as well as sure. Nadab and Abihu, I don't think they lost their salvation. Neither did Ananias and Sapphira. And it's very clear from the following verses that the judge believers did not lose their salvation either. In 1 Corinthians 11:31 and 32, "...for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world." God judges his own today. And physical death is sometimes a judgment for the child of God. There is a sin unto death. It's a physical death. And the child of God is not condemned with the world. And the judgment in all of these cases in both Old and New Testaments is not eternal condemnation. 
It is an example to believers that will worship is detestable to God and the believer must come God's way. The believing sinner is urged to come God's way, by the way. In fact, he's told to come with boldness under the holiest today by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. God makes a difference, friends. I tell you, this idea today that God doesn't move in, and Paul could say, you remember the Corinthians, and some are sick among you because you've come the wrong way in the Lord's Supper. And there can be other ways. Let me be very personal to you. A friend of mine who knows me very well, and he could say this. He said, McGee, since you have cancer and God has permitted you to live as long as you have and still in your body, it ever occurred to you that maybe it was a judgment from God? And I told this brother, I said, you know, I've waked up in the stillness and darkness of the night. And I thought just that and cried out to him. May I say to you, I wouldn't exclude myself at all. And when I say these things to you today, remember there's a fellow talking to you that knows what he's talking about and that he can still say that God does all things well. What an illustration we have here. God is coming forth someday in fiery judgment from the lost world. You bet he is. Don't try to hide your head on the sand like an ostrich, my friend. God judges, and he'll judge his own today. I believe and know that he does that. And Peter could say, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? First Peter 4:18. Now we are told... Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I'll be glorified. And Aaron held his peace, and Moses called Mishael and El-Zaphon, the sons of Aziel, the uncle of Aaron, said unto them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp, So they went near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. You see, when the news spread throughout the hosts of Israel, a people must have gathered about the tabernacle to view the dead bodies of these young men. And Moses quoted the words of the Lord as the explanation for the judgment. Let the priests also which come near to the Lord sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. And those who have been brought into a particular nearness to God must exercise a sharp insight into the holiness and righteous demands of God. In Amos 3, 2, listen to this. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. God judges his saints today to let the world know that he punishes. And he does judge. And I think Aaron's attitude and conduct are noticeable. He maintains a demeanor of silence. 
There's no cry of disappointment, grief, or resentment toward God. He bows in heartbroken submission to the will of God. Aaron can say nothing against the sovereign will of God, though his grief must have been deep here. God says to them, I'll be sanctified. And notice now the instructions that are given that come out of this incident. Verse 6 and 7, Moses said unto Aaron, unto Eleazar, and unto Ithamar his sons, Uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die, and lest wrath come upon all the people, and let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. And ye shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Now notice this. A restriction is placed on Aaron and his two remaining sons. They are not to mourn outwardly. I think there's a twofold reason for this. I think the first is clearly stated. The anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. They were set aside to represent the people before God, and they were God's representatives before the people. They were to continue in their office that there might be a mediator between God and man, lest wrath come upon the people and judgment of death upon them. And in the second place, well, they're not to show the outward signs of mourning which would contradict the action of God in judging their loved ones. It should be added, I think, that they must have gone about their office with sad hearts. But they are serving God, and there must be no evidence or rebellion against him. Now in verses 8 and 9, "...and the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink. Thou and are thy sons with thee when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation. Lest ye die, it shall be a statue forever throughout your generations." Now I want you to notice something that's important here. It would appear from this instruction that Nadab and Abihu had acted under the influence of alcohol. This would appear to be the finest examples in Scripture against the use and abuse of alcohol or drugs or dope. And it's never used. Everything else is used. Notice this. The priest must serve the Lord with a clear, steady, and sober mind. And today we're finding drugs being used in religion. My friend today, God despises that approach to him today. And you're getting nowhere like that. Look what happened to these men. God says, do not drink wine or strong drink when you come in before me. And this incident lends meaning to the injunction of Paul. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What a lesson against drugs and alcohol today. This is something that we need to recognize. Now, verses 10 and 11, "...and that ye may put difference between the holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean, and that ye may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken unto them by the hand of Moses." And by the way, I should probably add this. We'll see it later on. That in the Gospel of John, when our Lord turned the water into wine, was it intoxicating? And my answer is no. 
Why? Because this is part of the scriptural evidence. God made it clear right here at the very beginning to these people that you're not going to be involved in anything that has to do with wine. And after all, when you first make wine, it is not intoxicating. It hasn't fermented. Our Lord just made it, you see. Now, I must move on down into this section here, and they have the injunctions concerning the offerings in connection with this incident. Now, in view of the tragic incident, Moses repeats the commandments which concern both the meal offering and peace offering. Now, I'm not reading it over again, but here it is. They are to take these in the holy place, and they are to eat it there. Well, the holy place here is evidently in the outer court beside the burnt altar, and it's holy because it was set aside for the service of God. And that's what holiness really means, that which is set aside for God. A clean place would be in their homes, and made so ceremonially, of course. And Moses, verse 16 and 18, diligently sought the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burnt. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, which were left alive, saying, Wherefore have ye not eaten the sin offering in the holy place? You see that they did this contrary to God. Now, this is a tragic incident also. And we have here a failure on the part of the two other sons of Aaron. But here it's a sin of omission not a deliberate and willful sin as was that of the two dead brothers of these boys. Although the blood had been offered, the portion that belonged to the priest had not been eaten. And they just omitted doing this, apparently not realizing it and the importance of it. And now notice verses 19 and 20, And Aaron said unto Moses, Behold, this day have they offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. And if I had eaten the sin offering today, should it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? And when Moses heard that, he was content. In other words, Aaron assumed responsibility for his sons, as apparently the tragic incident had caused not only a loss of appetite, but a feeling of unworthiness in continuing to serve before God. And I think old Aaron felt like resigning at this time. And Moses at least was satisfied, we're told here, with the explanation. Here is a tremendous truth that we draw from this incident that is here. These men came to God on their own, willfully, and it was blasphemy, and God judged them. Somebody said to me not long ago, well, do you think it's wrong for me to belong to this church? They deny the deity of Christ. They reject his sacrifice. My friend, do you think you can come to God in that place according to God's will and on God's terms? God struck Nadab and Abihu dead for doing that back in the Old Testament. And friends, if he did that today, I think in some churches half the church members would be dead, as it would be true in the case of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, telling a lie to the Holy Spirit. The first one would get half of the members of our liberal churches, and this one of Ananias and Sapphira would get half of the people in the so-called fundamental churches today. Half of the church members would be dead if God was enforcing these things literally today. But my friends, there is a tremendously 
wonderful lesson for you and me as believers today. When you and I come to God, we're going to come on His terms. This is not an arrangement that you make. You are not making the rules. God has made them. No man cometh to the Father but by me, said the Lord Jesus.